Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Greatest Act of Love. All right, well, as you know for sure by now that we are celebrating Easter on this Resurrection Sunday, by the way, not just with us, but with multiplied millions of believers all around the world. So all across the globe today, believers in Jesus Christ are coming together. They're celebrating this greatest act of love, okay? And so what is the greatest act of love? We're going to define it for you right in the beginning of the message. It's simply this, that the Son of God gave his life to reconcile the world to himself, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And so the greatest act of love, maybe you've heard this verse, is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, trusts, put his faith, her faith in him, listen, will not perish. You never have to worry about perishing. You say, people perish? Yeah, sadly, every day. But if you'll put, according to the promise of John 3.16, if you'll put your trust in him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. That's the greatest act of love, that the risen Christ came to reconcile the world to himself. Now, what's on on, on tap this morning um, is that we're going to, as I said earlier, look at two biblical passages in the second half of the message today. The first passage, if you're new to the Bible, is in the Old Testament. And so your Bibles are separated, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament written before Christ, New Testament written after Christ. And so uh, in the Old Testament, we're going to look in a little while at Psalm 22, a Psalm of David written 1,000 years B.C. Then we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, which, of course, was written in the first century, A.D. But before we get to all of that, let me just tell you the story of the greatest act of love in all of history. So we're going to fast forward. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing, A to Z. And so let me just start by saying this. After the Jewish religious leaders at that time, after they arrested Jesus illegally, after they listened to false testimony about him dishonestly, after they literally spat in his face inhumanely, after they blindfolded him and punched him in the face repeatedly, Isaiah says that he was beaten beyond recognition, and after they had mocked him incessantly, the Jews turned Jesus over to the Romans, and the Romans decided to scourge him, whip him, flog him without any mercy. And so this greatest act of love is a violent story, at least in the beginning. The Romans took an instrument of torture. It was called the flagellum, otherwise known as the cat of nine tails. It simply was um, a wooden handle, and attached to the wooden handle were these long strips of leather, and embedded at the ends of the letter of the leather were bones and metal. And so what they did is that they tied Jesus' hands to a post and they began to whip him, flog him 
with this flagellum. And as they continued to whip our Lord, what happened was that the metal and the bones embedded at the end of those leather straps, they began to embed themselves in the back of Jesus. And as the Roman soldier would pull the flagellum away, literally pieces of his skin and his muscles were ripped from his back. Sometimes these Roman scourgings, they were so violent and brutal that you could actually see the victim's internal organs by the time it was all done. Many who were flogged by the Romans died. Historically, you can read about this. You don't have to read about it in the Bible. You can read about it in history. And so many, many people who were flogged by the Romans died from the trauma. But what you got to understand is that no man took Jesus' life. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, and I quote, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And by the way, did you know that this flogging, this scourging was prophesied, listen, 700 years before it happened? Remember I talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament? The Old Testament before Christ, New Testament after Christ? Okay, in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, 700 years before Christ even came to the earth, there's these passages in Isaiah talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, speaking about this Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are what? Healed. By his stripes, the stripes of the flagellum. We are healed. So after the flogging, the soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium. The praetorium was actually the palace that Herod the Great had previously built right there outside of the Jewish temple there in the old city of Jerusalem. And so in this praetorium, this palace, the various Roman procurators or governors would stay. Um, And so Pilate was the current Roman governor of the time. He lived in Caesarea over on the Mediterranean Sea. Every once in a while, he had to go to Jerusalem, especially during the Jewish feast days. Okay, and so when Jesus suffered and died, it was during Passover. During Passover, Jerusalem would swell to millions of people. And because Rome dominated the Jews in the first century, Pilate was concerned that there might be a mob or an uprising. And so he would leave. Uh, He didn't like it but he would leave Caesarea and he would go to the praetorium, the headquarters, the palace that Herod the Great had built, and that's where he would stay with all of his Roman soldiers to keep the peace. And so the praetorium is where they took Jesus. The Bible says these Roman soldiers took Jesus into the, the huge hall there in the praetorium And they gathered the whole garrison around Jesus. I looked it up. I studied it. Um, There's different opinions about how many soldiers are in a garrison. But the the smallest number I could find as I researched was 500. And so scholars believe that 
hundred Roman soldiers gathered in the praetorium and they surrounded Jesus like a pack of wolves would surround a little lamb and they were ready to pounce. What were they there for? They were there to mock our Lord. 500 big bullies. And so what did they do? Okay, they already turned Jesus back into hamburger meat and his inner tunic acted as bandages of all of his wounds. Well, they, they stripped him. And so there's Jesus standing naked, surrounded by 500 bullies. And they took a scarlet robe and they put it on Jesus. They chose scarlet because scarlet is the color of royalty. They wanted to mock Jesus' claim to be king. Then they went out and somebody crafted a crown of thorns and they put it on Jesus' head. And then somebody went out and they got a reed and they put it in his hand because every king needs a scepter. And I want you right now to picture Jesus standing there, beaten, bloodied, bruised beyond recognition, wearing a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns on his head, and a reed in his hand, being spat upon. These Roman soldiers would kneel before him, and they would say, Hail, King of the Jews, and they'd walk up and spit right into his face. And they would take the reed, and they'd beat the crown of thorns deeper into his skull. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the eternal Son of God. This is the uncreated holy God who came from eternity to the world, standing there, not fighting back, allowing them to beat him to a pulp. You say, why? Here's why. Because he loves you. He loves you. He wants to know you. The good news of the gospel is after Jesus rose again, he went up, but the spirit of God came down during worship last night in the 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 sound booth, and then this morning, standing there at my chair, I could sense God's presence, and I was thinking, man, God is so personal. If I would have lived in the first century when Jesus was walking around, here's the thing. You can only be, there's only so many people who can be personal with Jesus. But the good news for born-again Christians is that Jesus went up, and the Holy Spirit came down, and now God can be a personal God to all of us because of his love and his grace. Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? Are you personal with him? Or are you far away? And so after Jesus was bullied in the praetorium, they forced him to carry his heavy cross to the place of execution, just outside the city gates, according to Hebrews 13, 12. Not on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, but outside the city gate on a main thoroughfare where hundreds of people would walk by. And so there's Jesus taking the cross and and taking it to this place. In the Aramaic, it was called Golgotha. In Latin, it was called Calvary. By the way, I can't think of a better name for a church because whenever someone thinks about the name of our church, they think of the place where the greatest act of love occurred, Calvary. It literally means the place of the skull. If you go with us to Israel, we're going in 12 months. We're so excited. But if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to Gordon's tomb. It's the place where many evangelical scholars believe was the place of the skull. And the reason they believe that is if you stand there with us, you'll see a shape of a skull right in the side of the mountain, 
just outside the city gates. And so when they got there, they, they drove these long spikes into Jesus' hands and into his feet. And by the way, they didn't have to force Jesus' arms down. He gave his life willingly. When I was a teenager, I used to have this picture in my, my bedroom. It kind of looked like the picture up on your screen, except it had a caption on the side. And the caption said, I asked the Lord, how much do you love me? And he said, this much. And he stretched out his arms and he died. And I'm so grateful for that picture. I don't know what happened to it, but I'm so grateful for that picture in my teenage years, every day reminding me of the greatest act of love. Jesus died for me. The suffering involved in crucifixion was brutal. Went way past the nails in the hands and feet. By the way, invented by the Persians, perfected later by the Romans. But the, the problem with crucifixion is that as they crucified you and they put you up right, as you hung there, your wrists, your elbows, your shoulders would become dislocated, and so your body would sag down. And as your body sagged down, it, you couldn't breathe very well in that position. And so Jesus literally, because his arms, none of his, his bones were broken, but his wrists, elbows, and shoulders were dislocated, so he didn't have strength, upper body strength. So he would literally have to push up on the nail from his damaged feet just to get a good breath. We know that he would say at least seven short amazing statements from the cross, and I don't have time to go through all seven of those statements, but they are profound. Another thing, crucified victims, and by the way, the Romans, when you study history, crucified thousands of Jews. Those zealots who would rebel against Rome, crucified. They would line their, the Romans were so vicious, they would line their streets with crucified people as a, a way to warn everybody, don't you even think about rebelling against Rome. But some of the things that these crucified victims had to worry about were um, predatory birds swooping down, picking at their body. Not only that, they had to worry about wild animals because, you know, sometimes we see in the movies, Jesus is way, way up. Um, the, the truth of the matter, when you read history, is that a lot of these uh, people that were crucified were just crucified two, three feet off the ground. And so because they're nailed, they can't do anything about it. After the Roman soldiers would leave them to die, many of them hung there for days. But predatory animals would come and attack their legs, and there was nothing they could do about it. A horrible scene. This is what the Son of God did for us. How did crucified victims die? Often it was blood loss, maybe suffocation, maybe dehydration, maybe heart failure, maybe predatory animals. But Jesus did not die for any of those reasons. Because in John 10, 18, he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He died for your sins and for mine. He hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m in between two thieves, and they put a sign over his head. The sign had three sentences in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, 
all the sentences in the different languages said the same thing. The sign said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Pilate wrote it in three different languages. Why? Because he wanted, he knew at Passover, millions would come upon, um, to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. Some spoke Hebrew, some spoke Greek, some spoke Latin. He wanted everybody to know, hey, that's what's going to happen to you if you even think about insurrection against Caesar and against Rome. So Jesus hung there. As he was on the cross, the soldiers around the cross began to cast lots or gamble for his garments, his outer cloak, his tunic, his headdress. That would fulfill an ancient prophecy that we're going to look at in a little while. Not only that, not only were the Roman soldiers gambling for his garments, the Jewish religious leaders would wag their head and hurl insults, and other people who went by this main thoroughfare just outside the city gates would wag their heads, and they would hurl insults at the Son of God. Three hours into the ordeal, okay, so they crucified Jesus at 9 a.m., 10, 11, 12 o'clock, the Bible says darkness came throughout the land. Not just Jerusalem, I believe all through Judea, the province of Judea there in the first century. At a time when it's supposed to be the brightest and the most sunny, it says darkness covered the whole land. And so for three long hours, the whole land was dark. I'm sure everybody by now is wondering, did we do the right thing crucifying this guy? And then at 3 p.m., out of the darkness came this anguishing cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to see that Jesus was quoting from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, which we'll look at in just a moment. But he was crying out in anguish to his father. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. None of us on this side of eternity could ever comprehend totally what was happening in that time of torment. But we do know a little bit about what happened. At that time when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24. We know that he became a curse in our place. Galatians 3.13. For cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. We know that he offered himself as a sacrifice to God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a little later, he says something else. As he pushes himself up on that nail, takes a breath, he says the immortal words, it is finished. Now don't miss this. To die. it's an accounting term. It literally means paid in full. Do you see what Jesus was doing on the cross? He wasn't some helpless victim who was crucified by the Jews. He wasn't some helpless victim who was crucified by the Romans. He had complete charge of his life, and he wouldn't allow his spirit to be yielded back to the Father until he had paid for your sins and my sins in full. Thank you, Jesus, right? Praise God for that. Amazing act of love. 
absolutely amazing. Now, at that time, the veil tore in half. What? Yeah, the veil. If you're new to the Bible, um, around 1500 BC, God tells Moses, build a tabernacle. They built a tabernacle. That lasted until around um, 960 or so BC. Solomon builds the temple. Okay, and then that temple lasts until about 586 BC. The Babylonians come, destroy that temple. Later on, around 515 BC, Zerubbabel comes and rebuilds the temple, the second temple. Later in history, it's refurbished by Herod the Great. It's still standing when Jesus is there walking the earth. And so, listen, for some 1,500 years, whether it was a tabernacle or a temple, here's how it was laid out. There's an outer court. You walk in. There's a holy place. And then there's this veil. Josephus, first century Jewish historian, said the veil was 60 feet high. Other sources say it was at least four inches thick. The veil was so strong, if you tied two horses to either end of it and slapped those horses on the rear end and they ran in the opposite directions, two horses could not tear the veil. And yet when Jesus cries out, it is finished, miraculously the veil tears in half. Listen, the Holy of Holies behind the veil, that's where the Ark of the Covenant during Old Testament times was. The cherubim, the presence of God was in that place. People like you and I could not walk past the veil. We would die. Why? Because our sins have separated us from a holy God. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would walk past the veil with the blood of sacrificed animals and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, in order to propitiate, appease, satisfy the wrath of God against sins. If he walked in there without the blood of sacrificed animals, he would die. What you guys got to understand is that our God is a God of justice. He says that the wages of sin is what? death. See, that's a problem in our culture. That's a problem in a lot of our churches today. The whole gospel is not being preached anymore. Listen, the gospel is good news, but before you get to the good news, there's bad news. The bad news is that you're an unworthy sinner, and so am I, and we deserve death, and we deserve eternal separation from God. And so, at that moment, it is finished. All of a sudden, the veil, miraculous, it's as if God reached down from heaven and ripped that veil. And it's as if God would say to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, my son has been sacrificed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everlasting atonement has been achieved by my son. I no longer, listen, if you're with me, can you say amen here? Listen, listen, 1,500 years, animal sacrifices. God is saying to the world, I don't want animal sacrifices anymore. I'm done with this religion. I'm done with this whole holy of holies and holy place thing. By the way, the Jews, many of them ignored God, and so in AD 70, the Romans had to come and destroy that temple. I'm done, God says. My son gave his life for the world. Stop bringing me animal sacrifices. Listen, it's about him. It's about Jesus. 
And if you don't go to the Father through Jesus, you're not going to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because nobody, as the Lamb of God, shed their blood for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. And so the beautiful news is that now common folk like you and I can walk past the veil into the presence of God, and we can experience God's love and grace and his embrace because of Jesus. Listen, listen, every hand should be clapping right now. Not for me, for the Lord. Let's thank him. Let's praise him on this Easter Sunday. Get out of yourself and worship the king. Be a fool for the Lord and worship the Lord. Stop being embarrassed about who's around me. Should I clap or not? Why don't we all right now stand to our feet and worship the King of Kings who's coming back. Let's give him praise. Let's worship him. He gave his life. He gave his life. His life for you. His life. Hey, what more could he do? What more could he do? You guys can be seated because I have a lot more to say. <laughs> but listen, what more could he do? But see, here's the thing. Some of you are living far away from God. What are you doing? What are you doing? I say that with a pastor's heart of love. What are you doing? After he gave his life for you, you're not going to live for him? What more could he do? Live for him. Before you can live for him, you got to accept him. you got to accept his forgiveness, which, by the way, is a free gift of his grace. Now, one of the most fascinating prophecies in the entire Bible concerning what Jesus did for us is found in Psalm 22. Okay, and so in Psalm chapter 22, David is carried along by the Spirit to write prophetically. Don't miss that statement, because we believe the book that some of you have opened on your laps is a supernatural book from God. It's not just man's words. No holy men of God wrote and spoke as they were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit. That's why a guy 1,000 years before Christ could give us details about the suffering and death of Jesus. There's no other book like the one that some of you have open on your laps. No other religious book even comes close. Why? Because the book that you have open on your laps proves itself because of what's called predictive prophecy literally fulfilled in history. You see, the problem is that a lot of people say, oh, this is all made up. This guy's up here shouting for no reason. It's just all big fairy tale. No, 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 I'll prove it to you. I'll take you back a 1,000 years before Christ and show you prophecies that will absolutely blow your mind of what Jesus would do a 1,000 years later. For example, look at Psalm 22, 1 and 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the, what's the next two words? Holy One, Holy One that's our God. 
You are the one Israel praises. Okay, so why would Jesus quote that? We all know Jesus knew the Bible like the back of his hand. Why would he quote, quote Psalm 22 while he's hanging on the cross? Why would he cry out, why have you forsaken me? Here's why. Because we know from Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ, and we know from the Gospels and the Apostles' letters that Jesus, as I said earlier, was a sacrifice. Okay? And so as the holy, spotless Lamb of God hung suspended in darkness, he became a curse for us. He took our sins into his body on the tree. And at that moment, the Father turned away. And Jesus is alone in the darkness. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's why. Because God is holy. He can't have anything to do with sin. That's why the high priest had to bring that animal blood into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. God is holy. And so listen, listen. Part of the awful price of paying for our sins is separation from God. That's what hell is. Jesus, three times in the Gospel of Matthew, talked about how people who go to hell, they're cast into outer darkness. So part of the awful payment for our sins is that people have to be separated from God in outer darkness forever because the soul inside of you is an eternal soul. Your body will be cremated or buried, but your soul is going to live on in one of two places, heaven or hell. Jesus, listen, Jesus was separated from the Father so you would never have to be separated from the Father. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you would never have to say those awful words in this life or the next. He's so good, isn't he? Amazing what he went through for us. Absolutely amazing. And so look at verses now six through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone. Sound familiar? Despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Quote, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You say, yeah, pastor, I've read that in the Bible and in the Gospels. That's what they said to Jesus when he was on the cross. No, 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 that's not the Gospels. That's Psalm 22, 1,000 B.C. Details. Listen, Nostradamus can't predict the future in details. No one can. No holy book does. The Quran certainly has zero prophecies in it. The Bible authenticates itself because of predictive prophecy. They hurled insults at him. Not only that, look at verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a a potsherd or a, a piece of dusty clay pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of, what's the word? Death, 1000 BC. The Messiah's death prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. Look at the pain that Jesus went through. He's, he's poured out all of his energy, mentally, physically, emotionally, gone. His, this is what crucifixion does to you. It causes your bones 
to be out of joint or dislocated. His heart turns to wax. Um, his mouth is so dry. His tongue is sticking to his palate. And then he says, you lay me into the dust of death. Look at verses 16 and 18. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They, what's the next word? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 200 B.C., the Bible Jesus and the apostles and the Jews had. That's how they translate it. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garment. Listen, do you, see, do you guys see the details? Exactly. In detail, what happened to Jesus prophesied a thousand years before it actually happened. But then look at verses 19 and 22. Here's the good news. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly, help me. Psalm 22, 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus is hanging on the cross, right? And yet, even though they pierced his hands and his feet, even though he knew in a little while I'm going to be laid in the dust of death, he still knew that he was in the future going to declare the name of his father to his people in the assembly. He was going to praise the Lord. Hey, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, knew he was going to rise from the dead. And the resurrection, listen, if the resurrection really happened, and by the way, it did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're a skeptic about all this, thinking that it might be a fairy tale, no, 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 no. It's a fact of history. How do you know? Here's one of many proofs. Because Paul in AD 55 said, I saw him alive after he had been dead. So did Peter, so did James, so did the 12 apostles. And if that's not enough for you, over 500 people saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. He wrote that in A.D. 55. Some people say, how do you know Paul didn't lie? Number one, I don't believe Paul would lie about this. But number two, here's why. Because then he wrote, because he knew there'd be skeptics. And by the way, the greater part of that 500 that saw him alive after he had been dead, they're still alive. In other words, if you're a skeptic, Go knock on 250 doors, and everybody will say the same thing. I saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. He's risen. It's a fact of history. We've got to deal with this. And he knew he was going to rise from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the dead, listen, everything he ever said was true. Everything he ever did was true. And the fact that he rose from the dead says that the Father accepted his atoning death on our behalf. Now, we've got to apply the message, right? So we're going to, I'm going to give you three application points, and then we're done. We're going to give you these three application points from Romans, okay? If you're new to Calvary, we pick books of the Bible, and we start in chapter 1, verse 1. We go verse by verse until we're done with the Bible, because we really believe that the Bible is God's word. And what I say as a man, a man's opinion doesn't matter. All that matters is God's word. 
And so in Romans chapter 5, we see the verses up there. We left off last week in verse 5. Here's verse 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength. Okay, that means that um, when we were helpless, unable to save ourselves, you can't be good enough to earn your way to heaven. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the who? That's you, and that's me. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates, shows his lone love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Application point number one, the cross is how God shows his love for us. God didn't just say, I love you, and then stay in heaven and let us all go to hell. God didn't just say, I love you. He came and showed his love. Maybe some of you have been hurt in the past by people in your life who said, I love you, but they didn't do a real good job showing it. Listen, God showed it. He came, God became man, and went and died a vicious death so that we could live forevermore. What more could he do? Look at one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by our works. Is that what it says? Listen, it has nothing to do with what you can do. Everything to do with what Christ has already done. Being justified, that means saved, declared righteous by his blood. We shall be, what's the word? Saved from what? Through Jesus. I remember back in my BC days, people would say, walk up to me. Have you ever been asked this? Are you saved? And I think, saved from what? Leave me alone, right? What are you talking about? Then I started reading the Bible, and I saw saved from God's wrath. So point number two is the cross is where God's wrath was satisfied. You want to hear the the whole gospel? Here's the whole gospel. God has two natures, justice and mercy. His justice says sin's got to be paid for. Hebrews 9.22, blood's got to be shed. That was the basis of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Again, the better part of 1,500 years, whether it was in the tabernacle, later in the, in the two temples. Listen, every, according to Exodus 29, every morning, if you were a Jew, every morning and every evening, a spotless lamb was sacrificed for your sins. Every day, for the better part of 1,500 years. Our nation is just over 200 years old. 1,500 years, every morning, every night, spotless lamb, neck slit, blood drained, sacrifice to God. Why? Because God's the God of justice. And he says that sin's got to be paid for. But the good news is that all those animal sacrifices were just a type. They were a type of the one that John the Baptist saw coming for his baptism. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, as the Lamb of God, 
gave his life once and for all. No more sacrifices needed. Once and for all, he shed his blood to appease the wrath of God. And so check this out, okay? God's a God of justice. Sin's got to be paid for. But God's a God of mercy. I love sinners, and I want to spend eternity with them. How in the world are those two natures going to be reconciled? Here's how. Through the cross. At the cross, God's justice and God's mercy kiss. Jesus paid the price, satisfied God's justice, and now we're the recipients of his mercy if we will open our hearts and receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. Man, it's so good what he's done for us. Versus, yeah, we should thank him again. And then last two verses, Romans 10 and 11. He says, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now, having been reconciled, okay, that's for all of you who have received Christ as your Savior and Lord, we shall, not maybe, not hope so, not if I'm good enough, no, 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 no. We shall be, what? Saved by his life. He's risen, he's in heaven, he's praying for you, he loves you. If he saved you by grace, he's not telling you that you have to keep your salvation by works. Some people say, I'm saved by grace, and then I got to sweat the rest of my life, work really hard, maybe God at the end will save me. That's not the gospel. We're saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation final point of application, the cross is where we can be reconciled to God. No other way, no other hope. Jesus alone. He's the only way we can get there, ladies and gentlemen. Now here's what God does. God extends his hand down to a world that's rebelled against him. And he's like, hey, I love you. I want to have peace. So his son comes. Jay, check this out. Please look at me. Jesus takes the hand of the Father, and he would take your hand if you're willing. And he wants to do this. He wants to join your hand with the Father's hand. You know what the problem is? Some people keep their hands in their pockets. Oh, I want to live for myself. Life's all about money, my pleasure. Life's all about me and my agenda, my program. I don't need to hear this right now. I just need to, somebody close in prayer, let me get out of here. No, no, no. Let me say it again. God loves you, even though you're still a sinner. He still says, I love you. I want to be reconciled to you. But God's not going to force himself on anybody. Will you extend your hand and allow Jesus to put your hand into the Father's hand? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website 
at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.